Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am a sports nutrition and exercise physiology professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm an international traveler and uh, <laughs> a powerlifter, strength coach, I run strength yield, uh, chase a bunch of other stuff. So. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm a faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, owner of Extreme Human Performance, and I'm actually at home this weekend. Actually. <laughs> I am, actually. <laughs> and we have Dr. Steve Hertzler with us. Um, Dr. Hertzler, maybe just a sentence about yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Steve Hertzler. I uh, am a PhD in human nutrition, a registered dietitian. Uh, spent about 10 years in academia doing teaching and research at, a, at several different universities, and now I'm the chief science officer for EAS Sports Nutrition. Awesome. And I also have a history with uh, bodybuilding as well. I've loved it for many, many years. Sweet. See, that, may, that makes you the, the best fit Perfect for a guest. guest. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. All right, folks, we are going to look at a little bit of um, news, uh, listener mail, you know, the usual bit. Not too much because we want to get to Dr. Hertzler's origin story. Um, let's see. From the mail and news department here. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, the first bit of news I found out through Phil. I didn't see that, Phil, on, on Facebook. The top 10 best strength training <laughs> mm -hmm. fitness podcasts. Um, and we're listed at number two. Woohoo! Oh, yep. nice. So, uh, yeah, it was from the Massonomics guys. They, they seem stunned that we have over 400 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pod fade is not what we do. So we... <laughs> we uh, are here for the long haul so yeah so neat stuff uh i won't go on about it too much it just basically uh talks about our sort of mix of egghead and meathead and that sort of thing and how it differs from other podcasts and so yeah the massonomics guys the other there's other guys on this list of course a lot of the the top ones that you might recognize barbell shrugged and mark bell's power cast there's just a whole bunch on this list so um, it's neat that they actually did this right because i, I have yet to see and i think they as well have yet to have found any kind of top 10 list. Like, what are actually good strength fitness podcasts, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, cool stuff. Uh, that Very was, cool. Yeah, just literally like a week ago they came out with that. So thanks, guys, for that. That's, that's cool. Um, next up, this is related. This is from Matt on Facebook. And a lot of listeners know I don't spend much time on the Book of Faces, but um, Matt says, good morning. Uh, on your recent episode, you talked about checking out the Mind Pump podcast. Uh, your show and their show happen to be my two favorite fitness podcasts. I like to, I'd like to suggest that you listen to episode 509 because in the beginning they have a candid discussion about their bro talk and how it costs them listeners um, and, and some solutions that they have for that. Uh, you'll find that there are some things that you guys will agree with and others you won't. Uh, for example, they're pretty anti-supplementation, even with protein powders, uh, except in a pinch. 
Uh, and they do push two products, and I'm not going to do that in this um, recording here, but they have two products that they push. Now, we are listener-supported, of course, so uh, we, don't, we don't advertise products like that. But um, he says, now, they are irreverent a lot of times. Uh, I can see you maybe not liking that, but they are a good show. Anyway, have a great day. So thanks, Matt, for that. I, I have yet to get around to that. It's just um, summer online teaching and a hundred different things. I, I still try to extract myself from the university for summer, you know, uh, and whatnot. So yeah, I'll pass on their info. I hung out with them actually in Austin when they were there this past weekend a little bit. And when we got there, they were still recording a different podcast, and they didn't finish recording until almost like quarter to one in the morning so i didn't get <laughs> too much of a chance to talk to them so okay they may not be so eager to get up at six in the morning but maybe they are <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> right okay yeah um i want to give a shout out we were just talking about being listener supported um of course not everyone can step up and be a supporting member or continue to do so uh i do see the people who come through so here's it's this is rather random but thank you to the following people brian uh honey fund was one of the one. Uh, Vicky and Alan, you guys are appreciated. You help keep the lights on, right? We're listener support. It's sort of a public radio format. Uh, and, you know, we appreciate that. So we don't run ads in that sort of thing. Um, I have one bit of news. This is a listener mail from Karen. Sends good stuff all the time. Uh, this is not going to be something, if you're a vegan listener, I bet we don't have many. <laughs> With, with Phil, Phil kind of promulgating the meat cleanse, mm. I don't think we're going to have any. Um, this is a, a abstract that she sent by Mir Shahi uh, and colleagues, Preventive Medicine 2017. Vegetarian diet and all-cause mortality. Evidence from a large population-based Australian cohort, the 45 and up study. So it starts, I won't read the whole abstract, of course, but it says the vegetarian diet is thought to have health benefits, including reductions in type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, uh, compared to non-vegetarians. So what they did was they looked at a couple of different types. This is an association type study, right? It's not causal. It's not cause and effect. But uh, they looked at vegans, um, pesco-vegetarians, semi-vegetarians. They looked at a couple of different groups. Uh, the semi-vegetarians are the ones eating meat less than once per week. Uh, anyway, they analyzed these data, um, a quarter of a million participants, roughly. So this is a large number of subjects, lots of statistical power. Again, it's just relationships, though. It's not causal. But the interesting thing, I'll kind of jump to the end um, out of respect for the guest here, but uh, we found no evidence that following a vegetarian diet, a semi-vegetarian diet, or a pesco-vegetarian diet has an independent protective effect on all-cause mortality. In other mm. words, the often, you know, you, of course, you hear that people that are vegans or some form of vegetarian, lacto-ovo, what have you, uh, they say that, you know, that increases longevity, reduces disease. They're not seeing it. Interesting. It says, uh, following extensive adjustments for different confounding factors, so it's not like they're just clueless here. They tried to correct for several things and you know, narrow it down to diet, but no significant differences in all cause mortality for vegetarians versus non vegetarians. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, there's at least one feather in the cap of the, the carnivores out there. Right. So again, the name is hard for me to pronounce Mir Shahi. 
M-I-H-S-H-A-H-I and colleagues. So brand new stuff. Spanking new from Karen. Thank you, Karen. That's I'm always interested in that, right? I, I try not to. I remember there's an old Sagan quote. He says, we tend not to be especially critical when provided evidence that confirms our prejudices, right? And that does kind of confirm my prejudices. I, I, I think uh, our digestive tract is created to digest meat in some ways. Um, and I always point to the, the Mike Nelson story about being at the um, Smithsonian and I took those pictures of you <laughs> squatting down with the statues, those bronzes of cavemen butchering and eating meat, you know, and <laughs> stuff like that. But um, anyway, interesting stuff um, from the literature. Uh, any other news, guys, in, from the lifting or uh, nutrition world? Anything? Yeah, World Strongest Man is going on right now, but it's kind of hard to figure out who's on top of what and where. So, Okay. Because you're not really supposed to know until it airs, but there's people. Yeah, say they're not really off. airing it, right? No, it's just going there. Like they're filming right now. You yeah, just keep, yeah. I keep seeing stuff pop up. So there's been a lot of injuries and stuff like that. I know, but okay. I can't tell you right now who's in first. Mm-hmm. Definitively, I don't want to come out there and say something that's not right. So okay, well maybe maybe next week then or yeah, potentially yeah. Okay, all right, good stuff. Let's let's get to Steve. So, um, Dr. Hertzler, you, you're a, that rare combination, right? Um, bodybuilder, scientist, nutritionist, sort of all of the above makes you sort of the quintessential guest, I think, for us. Um, how did this come to be? I mean, go back as far as you want in your history, but uh, what brought you to, you know, what you do today? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I will say I'm, I'm quite disappointed that I didn't get an invitation to the world's strongest man competition. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I watched those guys at the Arnold, and it's just phenomenal. I just I remember shaking hands with Brian Shaw one time, and my hand disappeared. Oh. <laughs> um, just humongous, amazing. You know, Steve, and l- listeners should know Steve is not a small dude, so this is um, that's significant, right? Those guys are are giants. So. Yeah, they're just massive. So, I mean, my my story starts out in eastern Iowa. I, I grew up near Cedar Rapids. Uh, for any of you who've ever been there, you know that that is the heart of wrestling country. And so I grew up idolizing a lot of the wrestlers down at the University of Iowa. Went to a lot of home meets. A uh, guy from my high school... Uh, went to the University of Iowa, uh, wrestled, won a couple national championships, and even made it to the Olympic trials. So in our, our high school had won multiple state championships um, over, over the course of 10 or 15 years. So that was kind of sort of my introduction into sports and uh, nutrition. Uh, our coach did have a little nutrition module. Uh, that he gave to all the wrestlers. I wrestled in junior high, wrestled in high school. I was actually a 98-pound wrestler my freshman year of high school. Hmm. So I was. I grew up being the smallest kids in my in my class, and I think, as is true with a lot of people uh, in the bodybuilding world, uh, I grew up having small man complex. I didn't like being the smallest guy in my class. Um, I got beat by a girl in arm wrestling when I was in <laughs> yeah. seventh grade. 
Um, hey, just if, if I can interject, Phil's yeah. got some ladies at his gym. They, they'd beat mm. most men in arm wrestling, <laughs> yeah. just saying. <laughs> just yeah, they'd probably yeah. take me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, you know, I started, I started learning about about nutrition in in high school. I wrestled for two years, and I did some weightlifting as part of the training for wrestling. And after about, or about during my sophomore year of high school, I started lifting more and more, and I started enjoying the lifting more than I did the wrestling. You know, I just, I did, I didn't see a whole lot of future for myself in wrestling. And, and quite frankly, I started to enjoy the weightlifting a lot. My, I saw my first copy of Muscle and Fitness back around 1981. I think it had Steve Davis on the cover. Oh, wow. I don't know if you, any of you remember Steve Davis. He was a Mr. World. Yes. You know, <laughs> former, former fat guy who, you know, just became kind of, I would say he had more of kind of like a Frank Zane type of physique. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful lines, um, and so I just you know I started I started doing uh, bodybuilding, really following those routines. I was big into all the guys that were popular uh, during the eighties: Tom Platts, Roy Callender, Casey Viator. Uh, just you know, I used to read the, the old Muscle Mag Internationals too. I had a whole collection of those. Uh, just really. And I still love to to read articles about the old school bodybuilders that were popular in my in my high school years. Uh, went to some competitions where Roy Callender guest posed and Lou Ferrigno guest posed and Sweet. stuff like that. Wow! Yeah, yeah. It was just it was a, it was a great time, and my you know my fortunately my parents were really supportive of that. I uh, uh, I spent some money on a gym membership and. Gosh, the the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I put on like forty pounds. Oh, yeah. wow! It, it was kind of the combination of the lifting that I was doing and my growth spurt hitting at about the same time. Yeah, and, and just people didn't recognize me. And when I came back to school in the fall, and you know, I started getting comments and stuff, and you know, that made you feel pretty good. <laughs> I liked that. Sure. Yeah. So it was, a lot of positive, positive affirmations there, and so I just, you know, I basically kept going, and and I, I, my dad said, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna knock wrestling, knock off wrestling, and really do this bodybuilding thing, then you need to go tell the coach you're not going out for wrestling anymore. And so I, I did. I had a face to face with him and said I found something I like better, which was, it was a kind of hard meeting to have because the coach for my wrestling team was a former national champ at the University of Iowa. Uh, is now a Hall of Fame wrestling coach. So, um, but he, you know, he was really skeptical of me at first. Um, but I kept training, and through high school, uh, finally, when I got to be my senior year, uh, I, I decided to do uh, my first competition. I did the AAU Teenage Mister Midwest, and it was in Rockford, Illinois. And it's, it's kind of a story I always like to share with my students. I, d- I did this contest. I got, I remember getting to the contest and looking around and thinking, oh my God, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I, I, I trained in a college weight room and there weren't really many other people to compare myself to. Mm-hmm. So when I looked in the mirror, I thought, wow, I look big. Ha ha ha. 
And then I saw, <laughs> and then I started to see who I was competing against, and I'm thinking, oh my word, what have I done? <laughs> and I and I finally just made the decision. It's like, well, we drove you know four and a half hours to get here, so I guess I'll go up on stage and do what you know do what I came to do, and you know see what happens. And um, I was I was fortunate. I got fourth place in my class, and it was it was a good time. And the story I like to t- always tell my nutrition students is that, uh, you know, right after that show, I started eating. And I, I think I ate for about two days continuously. Uh, I had dieted quite a bit. I was probably down around 157 or 160, somewhere thereabouts, mm-hmm. uh, after I had cut all this weight. I gained 13 pounds overnight. Wow. Yeah. Um, just putting fluid back in and everything. Um, so it was really, a, you know, it was a... It was a very formative experience. I, I, I just fell in love with the sport uh, from then on. And in my senior year, too, I started to try to make some life decisions uh, about where I was going from an education perspective. And so I was kind of vacillating between being a chiropractor and being uh, a dietitian. And I actually had a, uh, a scholarship lined up to do a pre pre-chiropractic type of path, had shadowed a chiropractor and gotten a bunch of books on anatomy and stuff like that and and everything. Had a dream one night that I was actually a chiropractor and had a patient come into my office who was morbidly obese and wanted to be adjusted. And I remember struggling over this patient in my dream and couldn't get the patient adjusted. And I woke up and I said, I'm not going to be a chiropractor. Oh, you still remember that, huh? That you still remember the dream. (laughs) Wow. It was very vivid. (laughs) And so that, that sort of, uh, shifted my focus to, to dietetics. And so I decided to, uh, do a, a bachelor's in community medical dietetics at a little school in La Crosse, Wisconsin, called Viterbo College. They were kind of, they were a a neat little school because they had a coordinated program in dietetics, uh, which was nice because, you know, normally to do do your registered dietitian uh, status, you you either have to do sort of a four-year degree and do an internship afterwards somewhere else, or do a coordinated program in which your internship is actually incorporated into the last couple of years of your academic coursework. Mm-hmm. And so the program I had at Viterbo was a coordinated program, so I was able to do my internship during the last two years of my coursework, and then I was eligible to sit for the RD exam right away after I graduated. I, as I look back on it now, it's one of the if if. If your goal is to become an RD, that was really a good path for me to go. I know a lot of people do it sort of a more convoluted way. I was uh, the the only guy uh, in a a class of eight students. Oh, I hear that, man. I I was the only guy in any dietetics class I ever took, you know. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Which, by the way... I'm just going to say for a, to a lot of guys out there who think they might want to pursue dietetics, think about it. This is a profession that is 97% female. Yep. <laughs> and, a lot, and a lot of the diet, dietitians take very good care of their bodies. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Steve, were you uh, during all the, the nutrition training and everything? Um, in my experience, it was always that the, the bodybuilders were sort of the, 
it's sort of the thorn in the instructor's th side a little bit. Like, oh, this guy's coming out of left field. He's not their traditional, like you said, you're like in a 2 or 3% minority being a guy. You know, on top of that, you're kind of a meathead. You know, you're not, you're not fitting the usual mold. Uh, are you still training uh, through this period, or are, is, the, is the lifting on back burner for a while? Um, you know, I, I was doing my best to train uh, during that time, um, but the college that I went to had, had zero for a weight room, and so I, I had to try If I was going to train somewhere, I had to get a membership at a fitness place, and quite frankly, I didn't have very much money, so I kind of had some off-and-on off gym memberships. You know, if my grandma gave me some money or something, I would, you know, <laughs> join up for a few months and train. And I never really totally lost touch with it, but it was hard to keep up with it during yeah. that time. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so, yeah. So then um, did you hit the workforce? Did you go to grad school? I mean, because you're um, you went all the way through school, buddy. So, yeah, I I, I did hit the hit the workforce. I, I what was kind of interesting is, you know, dur during my time in, in medical dietetics, I did take a, a sports nutrition class, and one of my early one of my early influences, I think, in sports nutrition was uh, Ellen Coleman, and she was just a, a really interesting person to me because she had dual master's degrees in, in exercise phys and uh, public health, and she was an RD, and I was just really impressed with that and. I, I knew at some point I wanted to go to graduate school, kind of following that path, um, but I knew I wasn't really ready to go to graduate school uh, right out of the gate after I graduated, so I, I got a job, and that was what basically happened to me. I got a job uh, with Marriott, worked as a clinical dietitian at a, at a hospital in Kalamazoo, Michigan, Borges Medical Center. Um, ultimately met my wife to be there uh, which was kind of neat and you know I spent a lot of time working on um, on the cardiac nutrition floor and uh, neurosurgery intensive care unit things like that uh, did some outpatient nutrition counseling which was really challenging because you just never knew who you were going to get faced with in a particular day you know yeah. you might have four patients lined up. One could be gestational diabetes. I even had one with a glycogen storage disorder. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Rare. Uh, and then I, I got a call from a, from another male dietitian who'd actually met my father. And so he calls me up and he says, well, I'm one day and he says, I'm thinking about doing a clinical job. Do you think it's a good idea? And I, I said, yeah, go for it. The guy goes out to Great Falls, Montana, and gets a job in a hospital out there. A few months later, he calls me up and said, "We need another mm -hmm. dietitian. You're interested in moving to Great Falls, Montana?" Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm young. I'm like, "There's mountains there. <laughs> I'll go." <laughs> and I was there uh, for another about a year and a half. Uh, again, doing a lot of uh, inpatient work in, in cardiac nutrition, but I also taught. Uh, nutrition in all in the Life Steps Weight Management Program, had a patient with eating disorders, and stuff like that that just taught me an incredible amount. I, I always tell students that I learned more from one patient than I did in, in a couple years of graduate school. You know, it was about at that time that I 
Yeah, I, I put in about almost three years of clinical experience, and I, I said to myself, "Gosh, I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to do clinical the rest of my life." One of the things that was always driving me is wanting to know what the science was behind all these recommendations that I was giving patients. Right. Yeah. You know, if I'm if I was telling people, you know, why satur- that saturated fats increase their blood cholesterol, I wanted to know why. Yep. Why, why do saturated fats increase blood cholesterol? What's the mechanism here? And, and I just got more and more unsatisfied with just being a, a counselor without really understanding that what at the time was the scientific basis for what I was saying. I had some, some interesting expectations going into graduate school. I kind of th- thought that I could sort of pick my own major. And so I really wanted to study the effects of caffeine on, on sports performance. That was my big goal. Cool. And, and the person who, uh, contacted me from university of Minnesota was, uh, a professor there named Dr. Dennis Saviano. And he, he said, well, I have, I have money to study lactose intolerance. And I said, Hmm. I guess I could get interested in lactose intolerance if somebody's going to uh, give me a, an assistantship. Sure, I'll give that a try. You know, Steve, I always wondered about that with you because I, I use you as an example when I talk to students sometimes. But, like, some of that research, some of that data collection is not very glamorous, right, what you had to do, I think. Uh, and yet someone has to be able to come up with these recommendations. Like, you know, if a patient has lactose intolerance, limit it to sort of, maybe half a dozen grams or so of lactose and no more. Otherwise, you know, gas production is increased or, or what have you. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> I won't go into gory details, but I'm, I still remember you telling stories about that, like how you actually, I, I don't want to say become a flatulence <laughs> researcher, but yeah, you know, that's <laughs> like what leads to that path. But now I see that money kind of drew you in that direction. Right. Cause you had some, some support there. Yep. Yep. You know, full disclosure, the the support for that came from the National Dairy Council. Um, they were very, very interested in this question at the time and trying to help, you know, help people figure out pro- the problem of lactose intolerance. And yeah, after I published, after I published my first study, um, I actually, uh, and it was a, it was a, it was a study basically showing that I had done some work looking at. Um, adaptation of the of the bacteria in the colon to lactose feeding over time and basically what we showed is that if you did the exact exact opposite of what most people do and actually start feeding people lactose who are lactose intolerant the bacteria in the in the large intestine change dramatically and their metabolic pathways change and they can start to ferment lactose without producing as much gas and as much of a symptom response and those kinds of things. And it was kind of interesting because not long after we published that study, we got a, a, a hate mail letter uh, from huh. a nutritional anthropologist in Colorado who was very upset with us. <laughs> he was Native American, and he, he was concerned that we were trying to push dairy products on people who, because they were lactose intolerant, uh, he felt that, you know, they were kind of born to be lactose intolerant and we shouldn't be pushing dairy products on people like that. And, you know, our, our contention always was, is, you know, we're not trying to necessarily push dairy products on people, but if you do want to eat them, 
we'd like to help you be able to eat them in a way that you can tolerate them and, and everything. It was, I, I kept the, I kept the, the hate mail. I used to show it to uh, the students all the time to, to illustrate sort of uh, the uh, uh, dramatic response that right, sometimes nutrition research and controversy that it can generate in the public. You know, Steve, if you, if you look back, we talk almost, almost monthly on the podcast about the gut microbiome now and it gets so much attention you know the bacteria in the large intestine and so you were looking at that literally decades before it really got trendy yeah it was it was fascinating um and you know we didn't have anywhere near the tools then that they have now you know i can you know one of the things that i used to have to do is, is collect uh fecal samples from lactose intolerant subjects mm -hmm. And uh, we would take them to the laboratory, and we would put them in a blender. Mm -hmm. And then you know, we did di different experiments on on the, those fecal samples. We measured the activity of the enzyme that digests lactose that's found in the bacteria in the fecal sample. Uh, we measured bacterial counts. I used a, a device uh, called a glove box, which was literally this enormous plexiglass bubble with... Um, uh, openings that I could stick my my hands into, where I could anaerobically grow bacteria, um, and so you know I did that kind of that kind of work. We were doing work in our laboratory with different yogurts and things like that, looking at the efficacy of different types of yogurt. We were interested in all these lactate type of preparations, and. I remember one of the most vivid things I did is I started working with a gastroenterologist at the VA Medical Center uh, in Minneapolis in which we actually devised a pair of mylar shorts or pantaloons made out of the same material they make mylar balloons out of. And they actually put these shorts on me and duct taped me around the thighs and around the waist. Oh, my Lord. me up to a vacuum pump. <sighs> Pumped all uh, the shorts, closed the valve in the shorts, and then fed me pinto beans and let me be on my merry. Wow! <laughs> let my bacteria be on their merry way. Right, like, um, <laughs> like how do you it, now? It, hearing your story, it makes sense. But right, like when you just hear this story, like the end, the end game of this story, you're thinking, what? Like, how do you set out to become, you know, a professional in something, and then <laughs> suddenly you're you're strapped into mylar <laughs> shorts and they're yeah. sampling your farts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, biology is messy, right? I mean, it's like with the fecal literally. stuff. Yeah, literally. Well, I mean, it, you know, the gastroenterologist was, I mean, his, his modus operandi here was that he used to get these people who would come into his office all the time and, and they wanted to know why they had so much gas and, you know, people literally would send him samples of their own gas wow. in jars in the mail and said, you know, analyze this and tell me what's wrong with me. And, you know, he, you know, he, he could do it. He would do a lot of the analysis because, you know, if you and analyze that gas, you know, if it's largely nitrogen, then you know that the person's pretty much swallowing air. Uh, and so you deal with things like loose fitting dentures and not drinking through a straw and avoiding carbonated beverages and those types of things. Mm -hmm. If, 
if it's if the get composition of the gas is more hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and, and uh, methane, you know, fermentation gases, then you know you got a, a a completely separate issue. So there was a there was you know there was a method to doing this. It wasn't just you know doing stuff for the sake of being gross uh, and 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 playing around with weird stuff. There was a, a you know an actual purpose to a lot of this. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, a doctor, so, a doctor will do blood samples to look at your lipid profile. You know, sampling sure. bodily fluids and gases. That's that's how you do that stuff. You know. Yep. <laughs> yeah. um, um, well, let me let me fast forward then, just yeah. uh, because I know you competed in bodybuilding very recently. Uh, before we go to break and we talk about some of your thoughts on junk science and whatnot. Um, You've got all this clinical experience, right? You're you're learning in the trenches, uh, both in the gym and in clinical settings and that kind of stuff. But it's pretty ballsy, frankly, to to compete in your 40s. Um, why why did you do that? Yeah, I competed once in college in 1987. That was the last time that I had competed. And you know, I went and quite frankly when I when I started working in academia especially during the time when I was at Ohio State uh, I let myself get out of shape quite a bit uh, it was kind of the pressure of being on an academic tenure track uh, position in a in a Carnegie one type of institution and I just really you know got in got immersed in the academic stuff and I really you know one day I, I woke up and I said oh my gosh I have a gut Wow <laughs> I've never had a gut before in my life, mm -hmm. and you know that condition kind of kind of continued for for a while. And about four years ago or so, um, my brother, who had suffered uh, mightily from anxiety disorder and dep and depression, uh, took his own life, and it kind of woke me up. And I said to myself, "Gosh." You know, I, I gotta, you know, I gotta take better care of myself and better and better uh, control of my own health and fitness. I'm the guy who's supposed to know right. what to do, yeah, all the time. And so I made the decision. I said, well, let, let, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and try to do this again at the masters level. Um, so I picked out a small uh, competition here in the in the Columbus area. It was a uh, steroid tested competition basically a polygraph test mm -hmm. and you know did it did a competition there weren't very many people who showed up especially in the master's class and uh i happened to win but i didn't have a lot of competition either so i don't know how much i can brag on myself about that but still that's positive it st yeah it was still a lot of fun cool no that's cool stuff uh, all right i'll tell you what <clears throat> out of the interest of time we're going to go to break it's when we come back i i, I want to pick uh, Dr. Herzl's brain about a few things. I know he has some thoughts about junk science. He's got some good examples of that, like uh, BPA and plastics and the food supply and things like that. So uh, we'll be right back. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. 
And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we are back. Uh, we've got Dr. Steve Hertzler, who is uh, your chief science officer, right, of a large supplement company. Yep. Uh, um, Lots of clinical experience, bodybuilding experience. So uh, in the topic, we want to talk uh, about some of his thoughts that he's and opinions that he's gotten over the years, evidence-based, of course, but about um, junk science. Now, I know one of the thing that you, things that you're passionate about is over-extrapolation of findings from animal studies or you know big epidemiological studies that are sort of population-based and they're not necessarily causal. Um, Maybe talk about that a little bit. Like, what are your concerns? Do you see that happen in sports nutrition? Um, what's the deal with this over-extrapolation of findings? Yeah, I mean, I think in some cases it's over-extrapolation. And in other cases, I think it's also a matter of maybe people don't have as much perspective around what, where the studies come from and what they can actually tell you and what they can't tell you a lot of times. Um, you know, when I see... Uh, epidemiologic studies come out and, and there's always these invariable there's invariably these news blurbs that come out that say that you that doing something will increase you know whether some dietary behavior exercise behavior that will increase your risk of heart disease by 25% uh, and something like that and um, I remember I didn't really I never really understood how they figured all that stuff out until I got to graduate school and started taking some biostatistics classes and I started 
to understand a little bit about what hazard ratios and odds ratios really mean mm -hmm. uh, in the epidemiologic world. And, you know, I think, I think one, one thing that people need to understand is, is some, is that they need to have some sense of perspective on this increase in risk that they, sh that shows up in nutritional epidemiologic studies. I've always kind of looked at nutritional epidemiologic studies as sort of, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I wonder what kind of uh, control clinical trials we could we could do based on this suspicion that we're getting from the from the nutritional epidemiologic studies. Yeah, I like that term suspicion, right? Because that's about yeah. what it supplies. Yep. Yep. And unfortunately, I, I mean, I see a lot of people who are ready to start basing dietary guidelines on studies like this and you know number one is you know you have the 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 ever-present issue of observational versus causation uh, you know you, the problem with studies like that is there's only so many confounders that you can control for even in the best of, of epidemiologic study designs uh, and I've seen I've seen a number of, of epidemiologic studies where you you'll know, I'll start reading the paper and I, and all of a sudden something will jump to mind. It's like, well, that's interesting, but they forgot to adjust for this particular confounder. I remember seeing an epidemiologic study that was looking at their the uh, the uh, risk of having a, a high level of BPA in your urine and increased risk of heart disease. And, you know, they, they controlled for some, some obvious confounders like uh, uh, body mass index. They were using data from the NHANES study, mm -hmm. uh, which measures, you know, diet and exercise behaviors in a representative sample of the U.S. population. Um, and it was kind of interesting because they, were, they controlled for body mass index, but they didn't control for uh, can, canned uh, food intake, like like uh, soda intake, for instance, which would, you know, not only increase your urine BPA, but you also have the sugar content from the soda yeah. that could be a very important influence in this process. And, you know, it's kind of one of those situations. Sometimes it's accidental, and I think sometimes it's intentional, uh, where authors just simply choose to uh, avoid a analyzing for a particular confounder because they want to get a lot of media attention. Uh, sometimes it's just purely accidental. I don't know what it was in that case, but I see a lot of things like that. Yeah. And the other, you know, one of the other concerns I have with, with these types of studies too, is helping people understand the magnitude of an odds ratio or a health risk ratio. And, you know, in, in, in nutritional epidemiologic studies, it's very common to see uh, odds ratios or, or hazard ratios uh, in, in the, you know, say 0.5 to about 2.5 range. Essentially, a, 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 a rating of 1.0 means there's no relationship at all. Mm -hmm. A rating greater than 1 indicates a, 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 a increased risk. Right. A positive increased risk, mm -hmm. and then a, a ratio uh, below one indicates decreased risk. And what I think people don't really understand is the magnitude of some of those numbers. Uh, one of the things that I did uh, just out of a out of 
out of fun one time is I was looking at the odds ratios for th- for things where w- there's a much stronger there's much stronger evidence of cause and effect, like cigarette smoking and lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. All we have is observational studies on that one, but you know, I, I I've had a hard time finding anybody who can't link uh, cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And you know, when you start to look at odds ratios, hazard ratios from studies like that, you will you'll be looking at numbers somewhere between nine and twenty. Okay. Yeah, huge. Yeah. Humongous. I remember seeing one study one time of people with heartburn uh, that was resistant to treatment and the risk of Barrett's esophagus and esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. And in one of those variables, the odds ratio was 43. Oh. Okay. Oh. And, you know, when I see an odds ratio of 9 to 20 or 43, I'm like, all right, ah. Uh, I'm very worried about this. Right. Okay. This is clearly cause and effect. Causal, right. Yeah. Or likely. Very, uh, very when I likely. I see some of those other ones. I'm kind of like, well, interesting stuff, but I don't know. Right on. No, I hear you. Now, I, I know that you have a little bit of a peeve about BPA and plastics and whatnot. You mentioned cardiovascular risk, um, but you're well read in that area. And I know some of our listeners, and uh, myself included, I've been concerned about some of these issues, right? Like BPA and, um, you, you know, you can measure it in people's serum, you know, it's in packaging and it's so ubiquitous and, and that sort of thing. But is there, in your opinion, is it something we really shouldn't worry about? I mean, what about some of the, like the xenoestrogen thing and the feminization of fish because it ends up in the streams and, you know, and that kind of stuff? Yeah. You know, I, um, as I was saying before, for, for one thing, it's very difficult to do research on BPA because it is widespread in the environment. It's, it's very difficult to find a laboratory that's not already contaminated with BPA. Mm-hmm. You know, all the, all the uh, glassware, plastics, and things like that that are used in, in analysis, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in the dust. It's in every lab. Um, and, you know... When people are trying to measure blood values of BPA, you know, you're talking typically about nanogram-type levels. Uh, you know, so you're talking about incredibly small concentrations, and even a little bit of, of contamination in your laboratory can uh, give you a false positive in, your, in a blood sample that you're trying to measure or in a urine sample. So a lot of times, if you... The, the researchers who are doing a really good job in terms of doing quantification will actually um, feed their test animals or whatever. They'll use a, a deuterated form of BPA, um, which is, uh, you know, metabolized the same way as BPA in the body, but it's traceable uh, and, it, and it's not an environmental contaminant. So you can actually uh, get a better picture of what was ingested versus what's coming out uh, in different in their different parts of the, of the body, whether it's blood or urine. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, there's some real concerns about limitations of animal models and root of ingestion. Uh, rodents are, are typically used in a lot of these studies, mice and rats in particular. And they're not a real good model of humans from an endocrinology perspective. Uh, they're estrogen sensitivity differs dramatically between a, a human and a rodent 
and the excretory pathways of BPA are very different between a human uh, and a rodent as well. Uh, humans are really good at, at absorbing BPA and first-pass first metabolism. The half-life of BPA in a rodent is much, much longer mm -hmm. um, than it would be in a human. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in, in many studies I've seen it with BPA metabolism as well, you know, they'll, they'll give the BPA via a, a, a different route of ingestion than the oral route. Um, they'll, do, they'll give it under the skin or intraperitoneally and mm -hmm. uh, those types of, those types of methods of ingestion don't represent how people usually uh, take BPA in. The whole issue really is you sort of have some groups of scientists who are using those types of methods and, and are sounding a, a warning bell. And then you have other other expert panels and stuff like that from the FDA, the European Food Safety Authority, uh, the Japanese National Institutes who are looking at, at, at the whole scope of the research that's out there, what is known about the metabolism of BPA in humans, and they're looking at, at the same data and saying, well, we really don't have anything to be concerned about here at this exposure level. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's kind of... It's kind of this running, there's sort of this running debate that has been going on uh, for a while between some, some pockets of scientists and government organizations who have very different viewpoints. And a lot of it has to do with uh, taking their research in and putting it in, in its appropriate context. Okay. Uh, so I, I know this is very hard to do because I'm asking for a subjective value judgment here, but do you think... Uh, listeners have something to, to be concerned about you know like you'll hear circulating the fitness industry about people who they microwave things in plastic bowls and how it could leach into their peanut butter or something or you know their foods or uh, whether it's the packaging that they get when they buy a prepackaged product uh, do you think those levels of exposure it's either too hard to control in those studies or the exposure level is so low that they don't need to worry about it um yeah that's a that's a good question um, I'm not sure I can, I, I'm sure, I'm not sure I can give you a hard and fast conclusion. And what I can say is, you know, the, most of the regulatory agencies are very well aware of these types of issues. BPA has been a very well studied chemical. Uh, there's a, there's a high level of understanding of how the chemical is metabolized, what its half-life is in the body, its ability to interact with estrogen receptors and, you know, Generally, I do think that this is one of those situations where the expert panels have done a really good job of looking at, at all of the data that are out there and forming conclusions based on that. And so this is a, I, without necessarily giving you a conclusion of my own, I, I will say that this is one instance where you can have a little more trust in government panels and stuff like that okay. in the FDA mm -hmm. and uh, these different organizations right let, let me ask you the tough question do you worry about it yourself or is it so ubiquitous you're just kind of throwing your hands up and saying you know listen this is being monitored what about you yourself um you know i i guess my 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 take on it is that i i try to focus on areas of much larger much larger potential concern okay you know 
I, I'm more worried about about making sure that my blood cholesterol doesn't get too high or my blood pressure doesn't get too high. Uh, those those types of risks. I feel like in a lot of instances you can almost paralyze yourself if you worry about these minute uh, environmental risks, and you know, you may be unnecessarily wasting a lot of money and different things like that trying to regulate or risks that are so small to begin with. It's kind of like if somebody comes up to me and says, you know, that my risk of getting struck by lightning goes up by 25%. <laughs> you know, am I going to worry about that? No, because my baseline risk of getting struck by lightning is already so low. Right. 25% increase of nothing is basically nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, I hear I, you. I know that you know, there are people who have different opinions on that, and I respect that. Yeah. Me personally, I kind of tend to focus on risks that I think are of larger impact. Right. No, and that's a good point. I mean, let's face it. I, I've, been, I've been talking to an editor lately about writing an article, what may I eat, right? Can't have gluten, yeah. can't have plastic, can't have carbs, can't have fats. Oh, protein's hard on your kidneys, X, Y, Z. And after a while, you know, you can't have cooked food. It's got to be raw. You can't have dairy. You can't. And after a while, it's like, well, what, what may I eat? Because this is getting ridiculous, you know, so yeah. it's like this avoidance strategy that's going to make people paranoid. And, and like you said, if if it's not actually much of an impact, um, maybe we're fussing over minutia with that stuff. But let me ask you one last thing before I let you go. Uh, because of your position in the industry uh, and your training as a scientist, what does matter? Like what is what's coming down the pike in sports nutrition, for example, and I know you can't reveal like industry secrets and that sort of thing, but what trends do you see happening that you think have some value or trends that are happening that don't have value? Maybe mostly on, on the good stuff. Like what, what's happening that's, that's going to be hot? Can you speculate? Yeah, I mean, this sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier as far as the gut microbiome. Uh, I am a strong believer because of my the history that I've had with uh, prebiotics, probiotics, the gut microflora, all those type, all that stuff that I've looked at in the past. I've watched that, I've watched that literature just begin to explode. I remember, you know, talking to talking to students one time about, and this was way back in like 2006, and I was talking about uh, fecal transplantation, right? You know, where they were actually taking people who have, you know, recurrent Clostridium difficile and flushing them out with the same prep that you usually do for a colonoscopy and inoculating them with an entirely new flora from a, a fecal sample from a, a, donor. a donor. Yeah. And the success rate for curing that uh, that type of, of diarrhea with fecal transplantation is phenomenal. Right. And that, that was sort of one of the things that was kind of early on the curve. And now I think you're going to see the, inf the information that we're getting on the mi gut microbiome that's going to start permeating the fitness industry. Because, gosh, we know now that there's crosstalk between the gut and the brain. And yes. you know, there are C, C cells near the, uh, near the ileocecal junction, you know, that um, – uh, 
they are signaled by some of the fermentation products of malabsorbed carbohydrates and those C cells then send a message to the brain that says, hey, there's plenty of, there's plenty of food down here. Uh, you probably don't need to eat so much right now. <laughs> right. And mm -hmm. it's just fascinating to me. And I think, you know, the, the impacts on immunity and the ability of athletes to train at a high level and recover at a high level is going to become more and more and more dependent on having a healthy microbiome and making sure there's plenty of fuel sources around for those those healthy bacteria in the gut to consume and you know do their fermentation and sending a lot of these messages that need to be sent to the brain. I mean, heck, there's even, you know, the gut has its own neurons for crying out right, loud. Right, yeah. It's just amazing to me. And I think, you know, a lot of people, when they think about bodybuilding nutrition and stuff like that, they think about protein and, you know, a, a different supplements like creatine, all of which I'm a big believer in for sure. And, you know, those, I still like to stay with a lot of the, you know, tried and true supplements like creatine and HMB and uh, stuff like that, beta alanine, mm -hmm. plenty of protein. But, you know, the more and more I look at it, I'm thinking, wow, there may, be, there may come a point in time where we're all going to have to be on a, a probiotic of some kind, you know, to stave off some of the other you know, the consequences of aging and, and things like that. And, and, and the consequences of resistant bacteria, antibiotic resistant bacteria. Um, right on. Yep. Well, you know, bugs, bugs have been fighting other bugs for a long time and they have very advanced strategies for promoting their survival that we don't even fully understand yet. You know, it's funny, too, because you can extrapolate from other fields. Like, I overseed my lawn to try to keep the weeds down, right? Because the grass <laughs> will outcompete the weeds. It's that kind of stuff, yeah. you know? So, yeah. Exactly. No, that's and, and honestly, that's been something we've been talking about on the show for a long time is, yeah, the gut microbiome. And, yeah, more recently, as you pointed out, the, even the, the effects on, on – uh, mood and decision making it's, it's almost weird I have a student who he's very bright and he's he's going to go into he, he wants his doctorate in nutrition and uh, one of his things is about the you know almost free will like it, on the deepest level do we have as much free will as we think we do you know or are we being heavily influenced by what we eat and you know through this gut microbiota mechanism you know and, and stuff like that. so it's fascinating stuff to look at for sure um do you think there's going to be supplement products i mean there already are but specifically in the sports nutrition market like an explosion of stuff that really focuses on the gut yeah and i and i'm hopeful that yeah i i think there will be and i think what you'll start to see in, in the next you know 10 or 15 years especially is different different combinations of probiotic organisms and everything that are targeted to whatever your specific problem is i mean right now we're just sort of using a shotgun approach and you know there there's all kinds of different probiotics on the market and they yep. work for some people and they don't work for others mm -hmm. because we just don't really understand the individual characteristics uh of people well enough yet and i think eventually we're going to start to say you know for your particular genomic profile, these are the organisms that are going to work for you. Mm -hmm. And for somebody else, it could be a blend that's totally different. 
And I think we'll get a you know we'll get a lot better specificity around that. Right on, cool stuff. All right, well, thanks for spending the time with us. We are just about out yeah, of time. Yeah, thank here. you very much. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, tons of information there um, from Doctor Hertzler. Uh, good stuff. I'll tell you what, everyone, we're going to join you uh, next week. We're lining up some uh, future guests, of course, as always, interspersed with just the. The usual talk among the co-hosts, different topics and whatnot. But um, yeah, so there's from the horse's mouth, I think, on things like junk science, the value of clinical experience, uh, all that kind of stuff, which which are good messages in the fitness world where we see a lot of the opposite, unfortunately. So, okay, uh, we'll see everyone next time. Cool. See you guys. Thanks, guys. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.